Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. We all know the dates of the American Revolution, right? 1775 to 1783, between April 19th, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, and the Treaty of Paris, where the British signatories were so peeved they didn't even sit for the official portrait. That portrait hangs unfinished in the dining room of a museum in Delaware, showing only the American signatories next to a big open blotch of empty. That's not our story today. Our story today is about the greater, to my mind, American Revolution, or at least the second one, which took place without any muskets or whistling sabers, though it was carried off on the strapping shoulders of a general. It happened in the spring of 1787 in the same Philadelphia State House where the Declaration of Independence had been signed 11 years earlier. Fifty-five men of property and elite status argued for a summer in Philadelphia at the Constitutional Convention. There has been no greater happening in American history, wrote historian Clinton Rossiter. There have not been many greater, certainly of a political nature, in the history of the world, he wrote. President John Adams also stacked up the superlatives, calling it the greatest exertion of human understanding, the greatest single effort of national deliberation that the world has ever seen. The meeting was such a grand historical moment because it formed a radical and ultimately durable new framework for a nation at a time of total chaos and uncertainty. Under the Articles of Confederation, the stout revolutionaries who had licked the British were riding the struggle coach. They'd created a loose federation of sovereignties, but not a nation. The solution they came up with created a nation, and among its central innovations, in fact, the central innovation was the office of the presidency. It was like nothing that had come before. Just four years after a revolution fought against a despotic king, the new nation would embrace a post carrying many of the same elements. This is the story of the birth of the American presidency. More on it after a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is May 13, 1787. The echo of 13 cannons fired into the air whisked through the alleyways of downtown Philadelphia. Young boys and veterans of the Revolutionary War lined the cobblestone streets. The bells pealed in the Tower of Christ Church. The commotion aimed itself at the arrival of George Washington, the former commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The 55-year-old general arrived encircled by mounted dragoons, jostled from a five-day, 150-mile journey. Having completed the last coach leg from Delaware, the American hero arrived with a headache and a sour stomach. Storms and mud had tossed his carriage like the key at the end of Ben Franklin's kite. Washington was in town for the important business kicking off the next day, the meeting of the federal convention. He had been out of the public eye for four years since resigning his commission two days before Christmas in 1783. Now he was back. The Pennsylvania Evening Herald lived up to its name and heralded Washington's return. This great patriot will never think his duty performed while anything remains to be done. Inventors toiled in their shops trying to come up with image-displaying devices across which they could string endless breaking news headlines to meet the energy of the moment. Absent such devices, the press became lyrical. Newspapers printed poems celebrating the arrival of the man they called a war-tried hero. One Rhode Island paper offered these lines. The hero comes, each voice resound his praise. No envious shafts can dare to chill his rays. All hail, great man, who, for thy country's cause, flew at her call, 
for to protect the laws. After 150 miles of forced shiatsu, I would have wanted to lie down, but then I'm not the founder of our country. So, despite Washington's road weariness, he immediately visited Benjamin Franklin, writing in his diary, waiting on the president, Dr. Franklin, as soon as I got to town. Dr. Franklin, at age 81, was three years from his final rest. Besieged by gout and drained by kidney stones, he somehow retained his jovial, bouncy spirit. Franklin was called president because he was president of Pennsylvania, a watery ceremonial post, which we'll get around to later. He had just returned two years before from France to the elder statesman status in his home city, and Washington, a man of protocol, felt obliged to pay his respects to the town hero. The general and the sage of Philadelphia were peers on a level well above any of the others attending the convention. The two of them elevated the proceedings from earlier gatherings in which political leaders had tried to amend the system of government guiding the new nation. The New Hampshire Gazette commented on their status at the convention. A union of abilities of so distinguished a body of men, among whom will be a Franklin and a Washington, cannot but produce the most salutary measures. These names affixed to their recommendations will stamp a confidence in them that the opposition will not dare to attack or endeavor to nullify. Washington's bumpy journey demonstrated that America was not a nation knit together. At the very least, it was a good metaphor. It was essentially a nation of little islands, cities and states with incomplete connections that got worse when the weather, either natural or political, worsened. To repair, the founders had to embrace what they feared, consolidation. The more concentrated the power, the greater chance for abuse, they worried. It was a given of human nature, they believed, that power led to abuse of power. Nevertheless, they opened up the box of power and tried to distribute it equally with little spoons among the three branches. But never so much, they hoped, that they would invite the very thing against which they had just revolted, an autocracy that would trample individual liberty. This is the story not only of how the national architects took the risks that led to the more energized system with the presidential office, but also how they left the presidential role vague, trusting in George Washington, who oversaw their deliberations, to fill out the picture. An office built on carefully circumscribed powers was also built on norms, those guardrails of tradition held in place by ideas of virtue and honor, which could weaken if the occupant did not have those qualities. It was a system launched with an essential paradox. They knew of the corrupting nature of power, sought to check it, knew that virtue wasn't enough to resist the pull of the one ring to rule them all, and yet they put that ring on Washington's finger in the hopes that he would not only behave properly when wearing it in office, but have successfully done so that when he relinquished the post, he would have set the tone for future ring wearers. These founders, in their objective, were not content to simply let the surf of history lull them about. They wanted to build an entirely new ship and set it on a course, splitting whatever waves might come. This was a double reach for greatness. They would make history by building a new structure, a replacement rather than simply an upgrade of their floaties. And they would try to make a play for the future by building something durable to save the country from being history's ward in unpredictable times to come. The system would anticipate the forces of human nature, guard against them, and keep plowing ahead anyway. 
If James Madison was the architect of the Constitution, historian Edward Larson says Washington was the general contractor of the Constitution. He was the overseeing force of the moment. John Adams said, Washington was the best political actor he'd ever seen, which we can keep in mind as we continue to sort this history. What does it mean for him to act presidential? Well, that idea of acting presidential, which we talk about so much today, it was built into the office from the very start, literally, how a president carries himself before that office was even created. That shapes the office, and we'll see how that is embedded into the cornerstone of the presidency from this account. This brings to mind, of course, obviously, the modern incarnation of the presidency and the two famous presidents who refer to it in those theatrical terms. How could you be president and not be an actor, Reagan asked. Orson Welles, the famous actor, said Franklin Roosevelt once whispered to him, Mr. Welles, there are two great actors in the United States, and you're the other one. Here we'll pause to thank Edward Larson for his great book, The Return of George Washington, Uniting the States, 1783 to 1789. Larson was on Face the Nation several years back for this book, which won the Pulitzer, and it has been a, just a lot of fun to revisit it for this episode with this new intention. The first thing that was so important about George Washington's presence is that he was there at all. He had been very skeptical about changing the government. Were the people of the new country really up to governing themselves? First, there was the question of whether they had the fertile material in the brain pan. They had just created a government and not been able to anticipate the challenges of the future. So what chance was there that they would suddenly have the imagination necessary to think for the future this time? But more to the point, had the new Americans suffered enough? Had there been sufficient complaint and upset about the Articles of Confederation? to allow the kind of revolutionary action necessary to put real changes in place to move the loose confederation towards a national system? Had they essentially touched the hot stove? Or did Washington and the others need to wait until the country had sufficiently... Three, two, one. Or did Washington and the others need to wait until the country was sufficiently racked with pain to accept the necessary stout measures? As Washington wrote John Jay, my fear is that the people are not yet sufficiently misled to retract from error. Washington continued, problems must be, quote, sorely felt before they can be removed. But what if, by the time the country had suffered sufficient emergency to put them in a renovating mood, the emergency was too big to solve? I think, and I'm going a bit out on a limb here, this is one of the criticisms of James Buchanan before the Civil War, that he lacked the spark for action when the moment was right. Now, there are darker assessments of Buchanan too, of course, but this idea that great presidents move quickly uh, even when there's considerable risk and when waiting might be the better course, but when there's also the risk that waiting makes the problem too big to solve. Washington's view was then repeated back to him in a letter from his aide, uh, one of his former aide-de-camps. His name was David Humphreys, and here's what Humphreys wrote to Washington. Basically repeating Washington's thinking back to him. I concur fully in sentiments with you concerning the inexpediency of your attending the convention. If the people have not the wisdom and the virtue enough to govern themselves, or what is the same thing to suffer themselves to be governed by men of their own election— why then I must think it is in vain to struggle against the torrent. It is in vain to strive to compel mankind to be happy and free contrary to their inclinations. 
Here we must remark that the founders might have gotten even more done, been even more productive, if they'd cut to the chase. These sentences in a lot of these letters go on forever, and they are frankly very muddy. Washington once wrote a recommendation about that aide-de-camp that we just quoted from, David Humphreys. And this is the line in his recommendation of Humphreys. I persuade myself you will find no confidence which you may think proper to repose in him misplaced. Can you imagine how a man who wrote a sentence like that got his troops to charge in battle? Present your limbs in an ambulatory fashion and make movements towards the adversary that would not be misunderstood by a passerby as lacking in zest. David Humphreys, in his letter, refers to the inclinations of mankind. Inclinations of mankind. We'll hear a lot about man's natural inclinations as the founders sought to understand and interpret and then guard against man's natural inclinations, particularly with respect to the office of the presidency. When they make a decision after much debate, which we will get to, of housing that power, that energetic executive all in one human body. So what inclinations of mankind would operate within that body and how would the power given to them corrupt them and then how would you build a thing to keep them from being corrupted? So what was the basic way that humans behave? Was it possible to create a government that could overcome those basic ways of behaving? Washington also had personal feelings about why he didn't want to go to Philadelphia. He was enjoying retirement. In a letter, he described this as, My first remaining wish being to glide gently down the stream of life in tranquil retirement till I shall arrive at the world of spirits. Why risk his reputation, writes Joseph Ellis in his book, His Excellency, when, as Washington said, Gliding down the stream of life in tranquil retirement is so much the wish of my soul that nothing on this side of Elysium can be placed in competition with it. So what was it that bestirred Washington ultimately? What was it that sent these 55 gentlemen jostling themselves to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Well, what was it about the Articles of Confederation that was so bulky? We're not going to go into a long examination of the articles, but essentially the problem was that the nation was a jangly confederation of states. So America was not contiguous. It's better thought of as a series of islands. Washington's experience on the crummy way up to Pennsylvania demonstrated that the connective tissue between these islands was not very good. So the roads were – and the roads were so bad further south that in the Carolinas and Georgias, they traveled to ship by ship to Pennsylvania rather than overland. OK. So that physical disconnection matched the political one. Under the articles, there was no judicial branch, no executive branch. This meant – that there was no one authority that could set priorities and, and act for those things that affected the entire country. It also meant that states could make side deals and operate on their own in ways that made joint cooperative action difficult, particularly when it came to commerce. And so, for an example, states could print their own money, and they printed it on rough rag paper, which created all this chaos in the business cycle because no, there was no one orderly currency exchange system, which led to inflation. One state could jack up the price of its bills, uh, its rough rag paper, and the other states would have to respond. But how would they respond? They would respond in their individual ways, but there was not, no one central way of responding, which made it hard to do business. And there was also no one central way with all this money floating around to catch counterfeiters because you had multiple different kinds of currency, all of which was hard to keep track of when it was counterfeited. And this also, there was great speculation 
which was also ran rampant. So the economy was essentially in shambles, and Congress had no power to veto anything the state did because the articles declared that each state kept its own, quote, sovereignty, freedom, and independence. So if Congress tried to pass some laws or make some things happen that would straighten out trade, straighten out commerce, create some rules of the road, the states could basically ignore them. Further endangering commerce was the inability to make national treaties that regulated trade with foreign countries. So Spain controlled the mouth of the Mississippi and the Western Bank. Westerners and Southerners wanted access to the Mississippi. Northerners and Easterners cared most about Spain when it came to access to the Spanish ports in the Americas. So disputes over access of the river hurt American trade with Spanish America. As the states debated the treaty with Spain, it almost split the union because of their different and competing interests with respect to Spain. States also had their own fights over the use of rivers like the Delaware River, which ran through several states. Who had the power to adjudicate those disputes? No one. To pass a law, nine states of the 13 had to vote to pass the law. So that made legislating difficult. And under the Articles, amendments were only possible to the Articles of Confederation if every state cast a unanimous vote for them. Well, the states were quite different. So they had different interests. And so it was not going to be a situation where you had unanimity among them. Other problems, how do you pay your your revolutionary war debts when the central government can't collect taxes? So you have to rely on voluntary donations from the states. And as I mentioned, states often ignored Congress, and so they often ignored their requests for money. It also meant that there was no budget for the government to keep because it couldn't tax and therefore have a bunch of coin. And that meant that they couldn't keep a military paid. Well, there was no national force then to put down a protest by, by Western Massachusetts farmers in 1786 and 1787, known as Shays' Rebellion. Well, that exposed a dangerous weakness of a union that it, that it basically had to pass the collection plate to wealthy state interests in order to cobble together an army to protect itself. As you might imagine, enemy forces rarely wait while you're collecting the money, hiring the soldiers, training them, equipping them, and then hustling the fighting boys to the front. Shays had really rattled George Washington. He saw in it ratification of the British and European pundits that had prophesied that the revolutionaries weren't going to be able to govern themselves. Washington wrote that the uprising suggested that, quote, mankind left themselves are unfit for their own government. He also wrote to Humphreys, It is but the other day we were shedding our blood to obtain the constitutions under which we now live. Constitutions of our own choice and framing. And now we are unsheathing the sword to overthrow them. To get a sense of how outdated the system was for a country of three million, every state except Pennsylvania had a two-house legislature and some form of independent executive and judiciary to provide internal checks and balances of power. So the states had basically on their own created a system that that far surpassed what the Articles of Confederation had created. Washington had a constant set of letters coming to him from John Jay signaling the alarm. Liberty was at risk, wrote Jay. He wrote, I am uneasy and apprehensive, more so than during the war. And so all of this chaos is what spurred Washington to get out of his long chair. Washington wrote to Robert Morris, I can assure you, sir, that it was not until after a long struggle that I could obtain my own consent to appear again in a public theater. But what he had concluded was, so long as the states retained independent sovereignty, the country will remain weak. 
He also wrote, The situation of the general government, if it can be called a government, is shaken to its foundations and liable to be overset by every blast. In a word, it is at an end, and unless a remedy is soon applied, anarchy and confusion will inevitably ensue. We are either a united people or we are not. Washington wrote to Madison, and if the former, let us in all matters of general concern act as a nation. So he's on for it. He believes in a strong national power and remedies for it, and he's going to go to Pennsylvania to help them put together a plan to fix things. Joseph Ellis makes a very strong case that he's not just worried about the country. He's also a little worried about his own reputation. And in the end, it was the merits of repair and Washington's concern about not participating when his country needed him that might have uh, kicked him out of Mount Vernon. Should he go and the convention succeed, his friend Henry Knox wrote to him, quote, it would be a circumstance highly honorable to your fame in the judgment of the present and future ages and doubly entitle you to the glorious Republican epithet, the father of your country. Washington had already been thinking about a reputational hit he would take if he didn't show. Whether my non-attendance in this convention will not be considered as a dereliction to republicanism, nay more. Whether other motives may not, however injuriously, be ascribed to me for not exerting myself on this occasion in support of it. So we return to the hot months of the Philadelphia summer, where, and this was the colonial capital, remember, there was not modern sanitation. So it was hot and a stench hung over the broad, leafy streets. At the start of the proceedings, Washington was elected as the presiding officer, elected unanimously. He then took the speaker's chair, a finely carved seat with a half sun painted on its crown. This meant he oversaw the proceedings and was given a certain amount of special deference. It was a rule of order, for example, that every member shall stand in his place until the president pass him. So imagine the symbolism of that. They're creating a new entity, though at the start of the meeting not everybody knew exactly how grand the achievement would be. And this new entity would need a leader. And there, at the front of the room, overseeing the deliberations of the creation of the new entity, was the very model of a modern major general. Sorted matters vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. Sorted matters vegetable, animal and mineral, he is the very model of a modern major general. So then who are the other fellows filling in the cheap seats? Well, in this time of anti-elitism and anti-politics, we should remember that the 55 men who met in Philadelphia were both eggheads and experienced politicians. They had read Aristotle, Plato, and Cicero, and Locke. They had also served in colonial assemblies, local conventions, and the Continental Congress. 39 had already served in Congress, and 7 had been state governors. 8 had signed the Declaration of Independence, and 15 helped draft constitutions for the states after the break with Britain. Half had been to college, 34 were lawyers, and the group included plantation owners, farmers, and merchants. Here's why that egghead and practical experience mattered. Well, thinking about human nature mattered if you were trying to design something that would accommodate human nature's highs and lows. So you needed to have read philosophers who thought about how human nature worked. And political experience mattered because you were trying to anticipate the needs and motives of politicians who would compete, have different interests, and ultimately be required to come up with a compromise. Compromise, yes, compromise at the heart of this system. And of course, compromise would be necessary for what they were about to embark on. A great big honking compromise. And we'll get to that debate in our next episode. 
That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher and in-house historian Brian Rosenwald is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington post-history section. Elizabeth Henson is the master manager of research and tri-cornered hats and the Google document. And thanks to Alan Pang and the rest of the CBS radio crew who helped make this episode and every episode, it turns out, happen on the CBSN. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a few weeks with our second and final installment of The Making of the Presidents. Uh-huh.